The Hebrew scripture reading is from the prophet Isaiah, writing of his hope for the people of Israel, who had formerly mistaken the darkness for light. May this hope find an echo in our own stories today. He writes, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, to them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. The gospel reading for today comes from Matthew 4, as Matthew recounts the events that began Jesus' ministry and the calling of his first followers. May we hear in this story the echo of our own call to follow in the way of this teacher. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. In the background at the March on Washington in August 1963, while Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. boldly proclaimed the dreams he clung to as a hope for tomorrow, off to the side stood a man whose presence that day is all but forgotten in many history books. But as one historian has said, without Baird Rustin, chief organizer of the protest that day, the march on Washington would have been like a bird without wings. It never would have left the ground. Rustin was a key strategist for Dr. King in coordinating nonviolent efforts over the years, beginning with the Montgomery bus boycotts. And he drew on his own experiences working with Gandhi's movement in India to educate Dr. King into a deeper understanding of nonviolent direct action. 
He organized the March on Washington in just eight weeks, and he would be featured on the cover of Life magazine a week later for it. But despite his invaluable contributions, over time, he faded into the background of the civil rights movement, because in addition to his characteristics as a master organizer, a brilliant intellectual, and a pacifist, he was also an openly gay man at a time when that was enough to relegate him to the sidelines. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. has said, of all the leaders of the civil rights movement, Baird Rustin lived and worked in the deepest shadows, not because he was a closeted gay man, but because he wasn't trying to hide who he was. Though history may have forgotten him, and I had never heard his name until this week, Baird Rustin was guided by a vision and deeply committed to the way of nonviolence. It was the star that called him forward into a brighter day. In this season of epiphany, we each seek to follow the star that guides us forward. Unlike the wise men, that star likely isn't leading us literally to Bethlehem, so where does it lead? For Martin Luther King Jr., the star that guided him was the hope of the great society, of beloved community. As we seek to follow the star that leads us, our work is to get to know it, to discern its shape, its character. What is the nature of its light? On what does its light tend to shine? Does the star seem to have a momentum to it? Is it headed in a particular direction? And if so, can we discern where it's headed next and align ourselves with its path? If the star calls us to follow, so too does Jesus in this gospel passage today, walking on the shoreline, beckoning ordinary men to come and learn from him and walk in his way. And following that way, tracing his actions to locate the momentum of his work, the direction his life is pointing us toward, that is the work of faith. The gospel passage for today begins with Matthew's note that John the Baptist, the free thinker, the revolutionary, the prophet in the wilderness challenging the system and speaking truth to power, has been imprisoned for exactly those reasons. Jesus' own ministry had begun with the act of his baptism into this prophetic tradition that John represents. Now he hears of this news, and Matthew tells us, withdraws into Galilee. It's one quick sentence, just a note, that upon hearing that his colleague, perhaps his mentor, has been put in prison, he removes himself from the scene and retreats further north. He leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum. Maybe it's a strategic move. Maybe he's even scared, though he hasn't really done much that we know of yet to get himself into trouble. Or maybe it's the beginning of a pattern that would characterize his entire ministry, a pattern of actively choosing the nonviolent path. 
If this were the only instance of Jesus engaging in nonviolence, it would be a pretty shaky case. But Matthew returns to this theme over and over in his gospel, painting Jesus as a proponent of nonviolence, both in his teachings and in his own actions. The decision to withdraw is echoed two other times in Matthew with that same Greek word for withdraw, both times when Jesus is faced with a threat. And in neither instance is it cowardice. Rather, he knows what will come of the confrontation, and so he chooses to save it for a more appropriate time, which is not the same as avoiding confrontation. It's a decision made out of wisdom, not fear. As the cross makes clear, confrontation would come. But even in the midst of that most climactic struggle of Jesus' life, Matthew again shows him as a practitioner of nonviolence. In the moment of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the disciples, in a fit of fear and protective rage, raises his sword against one of the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and cuts off his ear. Jesus, rather than joining in the struggle, rebukes his disciple. And then, at least in John's account, he heals the very man who's trying to cart him off to jail and ultimately to his death. Can you imagine being in the position of that soldier, slapping handcuffs on the man who's just given you back a piece of yourself, who has healed your life-threatening wound knowing you're leading him to his death. What a humanizing experience. You can consider the playing field leveled. In the chapter that follows our reading for today, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew will present Jesus offering these familiar teachings. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left as well. When someone sues you for your outer coat, give them your garment as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them the second mile as well. Plenty of Christians have read this passage and determined that Jesus is calling for a radical self-denial. And certainly that is something Jesus calls for on some level. But Jesus was also a radical figure because of the way his teaching and ministry lifted up and empowered those on the bottom rungs of society, the ones who didn't even have the strength between them to rise up physically and stand up for themselves. All they had was the hope of reclaiming their dignity. So rather than radical self-denial, theologian Walter Wink articulates Jesus' gospel of nonviolence in this passage as radical self-humanizing. It's a strategy that calls for creativity, a strategy that empowers the disempowered to demand that their full personhood be acknowledged. Take the three instances in this teaching, the cheek, the coat, and the mile. When someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the left as well. Walter Wink argues that when Luke, Luke transcribed this same teaching, he missed the point of it, which is the difference between right and left. Ancient Near Eastern culture was a right-handed world, and in that world, the left hand is only used for unclean tasks. You would never strike an equal with your left hand. And so when Matthew says, if you've been struck on the right cheek, 
a strike that only comes from a left hand, his audience immediately knows he's not talking about two friends in a brawl. Power dynamics immediately come into play. A left-handed strike is the strike of a master to a slave, of a superior to a subordinate, the strike of a Roman guard to the Jew whose land he occupies. So to the oppressed, Matthew's Jesus says, when the strike comes, your creative, nonviolent response is to turn the other cheek, not to be beaten to a pulp, but to demand that your humanity be recognized that your dignity as a full person be restored. It's saying essentially, you can hit me again, but by God, you'll do it as an equal. Next, there's handing over your inner garment as well, or as Walter Wink designates it, the teaching to just go on and strip naked. (laughs) The society Jesus found himself in was one plagued with indebtedness. Think how often Jesus used examples about creditors or debt forgiveness. This teaching is once again about empowerment of the underdog. In this broken system, a creditor was entitled to taking collateral for a debt. And since those indebted were usually poor, if all they had to give was their long outer cloak, the law made a provision for that as well. As long as the creditor returned it each evening, so the poor man would have something to sleep in. Jesus' instruction, then, is not about giving up or giving in and just handing over your undergarment as well. It's about literally exposing yourself to expose the exploitative system for what it is. Just go on and strip down naked, making the statement that if you got me this close to naked in the first place, we might as well go the whole way. And what are you going to take next? My body? It's creative, all right. And it's nonviolent, and it might even cause the creditor to re-examine a system he's never had to give a second thought to, because it's always worked to his advantage. And then there's going the second mile. Again, not an arbitrary example that Matthew's Jesus has chosen. We're not talking about a traveler on the side of the road in need of assistance. The ones who would requisition aid carrying their packs for a mile are Roman soldiers, who were restricted in the distance they could require their subjects to travel. So carrying the load for one mile is all that they could demand. And requiring a civilian to carry it any further would be an infraction for them of the military code. So the instruction to go the second mile as well now becomes not an invitation to live as a doormat, but an invitation once again to creative self-empowerment, to taking agency that will humanize both the oppressed and the oppressor by requiring that they look you in your God-given eyes. It's the harder path, for sure. It doesn't require much creativity to connect a fist to a face. For that matter, it doesn't require much creativity to drop a bomb and watch all your problems explode until you have new ones. The work of nonviolence, on the other hand, demands creativity. If you have committed not to resort to violence, even and especially in a threatening situation, it requires you to think outside the box about how you will respond. 
A commitment to nonviolence also requires proactive, direct action. Because the goal is never to get into a hot spot where it's us or them on the line. The goal is instead always to transcend the lines we draw and remember that everybody on both sides has a beating heart, that they are all children of God. So let's stop and look one another in the eye. This is how you end up with a movement like the Montgomery bus boycotts in the 50s. Hopefully by now, the myth that Rosa Parks sat down because she was tired has been erased from our cultural imagination, replaced by the reality that she took a calculated risk as a part of a larger and ongoing movement of nonviolent direct action. As she herself later said, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. Simply to sit and not stand up. It was outside the box. It was creative. Simply to sit. Simply to keep walking the extra mile. Simply to turn once more and show them your other cheek. Did you know that in order to facilitate the boycott, which continued for the better part of a year, the organizers in Montgomery orchestrated a carpool system with more than 300 cars transporting folks to and from work. A few months into the boycott, as media attention grew, activists around the nation began to visit, to work with them, and to share ideas. And Baird Rustin was among them. It was during this encounter that he shared with Dr. King the principles of nonviolent resistance he had learned in his work with Gandhi's movement in India. This so affected Dr. King that he would eventually be known to say that Christ showed us the way, and Gandhi in India showed us that it could work. The way of Jesus is nonviolent. This much the Gospels leave abundantly clear. The question for us, Northminster, is how we will follow in the way of our nonviolent leader. Jesus walked the shorelines of Capernaum, calling fishermen to come and to learn his way. So too he calls us to come and taste and see. In a letter written after his time spent in India, Rustin expressed his vision of what this gospel of nonviolence requires. We need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers, he wrote upon returning to the States. He continued, the only weapon we have is our bodies and we need to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. May we have the courage to seek together how we can be angelic troublemakers, following in the way of Baird Rustin, of Martin Luther King Jr., of Gandhi, of the Christ. Amen.